0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books and Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semecka, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today we'll be discussing a new book by Dr. Nancy Wallach titled The Insider, The Life of Virginia C. Gildersleeve, published by Columbia University Press. Dr. Wallach taught women's history for 30 years at Barnard College and Columbia University and is now a research scholar and the author of several books, including A Class by Herself, Protective Laws for Women Workers 1890s to 1990s, which won the Philip Taft Labor History Award and the William G. Bowen Award for the Outstanding Book on Labor and Public Policy. She also wrote Women in the American Experience, Early American Women, a documentary history, 1600 to 1900, and Eleanor Roosevelt in her own words. It is a pleasure to welcome Nancy Wallach to the show. I am delighted to be with you today.
0: Thank you so much.
1: I am so thrilled to have Nancy Wallach on the show today because I have used women in the American experience for many years in my women's history class at Brookdale with enormous success. So I am a big fan and admirer of Nancy Wallach's work. So I am really enjoying this, gonna really enjoy getting to talk to her in person for the first time after all this time. And so let's start off by telling us a little bit about how this book came about.
0: That is in fact, a difficult question. So let me try, I've been uh, teaching women's history and also the history of education for many years, I was looking for a a research topic that involved higher education, women's colleges, the progressive era, and the theme of competition. I think that competition among women is probably one of the least discussed topics in US women's history, and I wanted to get into it. And somehow at this juncture, I think because I teach at Barnard, uh, the idea of working on Virginia Gildersleeve came swimming into view. Uh, I was familiar with her autobiography and uh, some of our students and graduate students had done work on Virginia Gildersleeve and so had some of my colleagues. So it was sort of a natural topic. Virginia's Accomplishments are formidable. Let me say that at the outside. She was the dean of Barnard College for 36 years from 1911 to 1947. She also established a second career for herself. As an internationalist, she co-founded the International Federation of University Women in 1918 and much later in her career. In 1945, she served as the sole woman member of the U.S. delegation to the charter meeting of the United Nations. Uh, So uh, uh, overall, her accomplishments uh, were and are impressive at the same time and I really like this part, Virginia was sort of a challenge. There was an undertow to her career. Some elements of her life cause controversy, including accusations of bias in college admissions. And I bring this up at the outset because it's a current topic, a, a, a topic that's uh, receiving attention in the news at this moment. Uh, some of the problematic elements in Virginia's career, I felt, may have deterred previous biographers, because here is a public figure on whom many other historians have tried to write complete studies and sort of abandoned ship midway, and often there isn't a reason for such abandonment. Uh, so, I was pretty concerned about pro- what could be problematic elements in Virginia's career. And another challenge that Virginia posed was that uh, she really wanted to retain control of her own life story. Uh, And this is an interesting problem to retain control of her life story. She wrote an impressive autobiography in the 1950s. And at the same time, she destroyed a good portion of her personal papers. Uh, These two things are both very important. Uh, They're important as obstacles, uh, but also as opportunities Uh, So I felt I had to overturn to get past the obstacles, turn them into opportunities and to seize control of the project. And uh, eventually I did. And eventually I appreciated all the challenges that Virginia threw in my way. And I have to say, let me say, I call I am calling her by her first name uh, because I find her last name. To be a tongue twister, I just can't get around it. So I started calling her by her first name to myself, and now I'm and it in the book. And now I'm just doing it. So
1: they become our friends, right? Anyway, Gee, yes. You've, lived, but, you've probably lived with her in your head for several years. That's right. That's
0: right. That's that's it. Exactly.
1: You know. So you really have, uh, you know, you've created this interesting story about a woman who's
0: very complicated, right? So why did you call the book The Insider? Well, there's two ways, two important ways in which she was an insider. The title has two meanings. Uh, The first is that when Barnett first considered Virginia to, as a candidate for the deanship when she was very young, around 1910, she was the only one of about a dozen women candidates considered who had spelled, spent her entire academic career at Barnard and Columbia. She had been a Barnett student and a Columbia graduate student, and she had taught at both institutions uh, and she was had many connections on campus and she was therefore the inside candidate. And this gave her an edge, a big advantage over the competition. So that was one reason. But she was an insider in a larger way to her insider role, rested in large part on social class and on assets that she inherited from her family, uh, such as her upbringing, her educational advantages, her access to financial resources, and to family contacts, to family connections. That's all important. In short, she was a member of uh, what could be called the social and cultural elite in New York City at that time. She was not at the top of the ladder, as she would be the first to tell you, but she was uh, um, part of the privileged group, the professional class, in large part because of her father, who was a judge on the state Supreme Court and locally prominent. Uh, very prominent and that helped a great deal Uh, and elites always know how to take care of themselves, how to preserve their own boundaries. On some occasions, I might add, Virginia was an outsider. I think she was really an outsider when she served at the UN in 1945. Uh, uh, There were very few women delegates, very few. And uh, uh, she lacked political experience. And she, she was an outsider there and had to cope with it. She was sometimes an outsider when she lived in England and had to cope with that. Uh, but the insider status was important to her. She craved it, and I think it's the dominant gist uh, of, of 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 the book. Uh, uh, and, and I, I guess uh, in many instances, we're reading biographies of. Uh, of of people who saw themselves totally as outsiders and they tell you how they you know, they climbed out of some sort of morass with Virginia that's not the case she's an insider and it's important yeah important part of her story and her success oh absolutely, yeah. and, absolutely. Uh, at
1: a time when women didn't you know there were not many women at that stature of professional accomplishment that
0: she she achieves. so well the professional accomplishment actually has two parts one is the insider status and the other is her ability to be a player a striver a competitor uh uh she's moving and shaking uh so it's really the two things combined it's a combination and oh, can you can,
1: can you comment a little on her personality cuz you you talk a little bit about her um her ability to or her stubbornness um as well so would you follow up a little you know can i follow up a little bit with that
0: yes in 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 in, in personality i think the central piece of her personality uh And something that explains her uh, uh, stance of defiance, she's also a very defiant personality. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the gist of what she's after, what were her goals? She wanted authority. She wanted to run things. Mm -hmm. To exert authority, she had to acquire and dispense expertise. That is, uh, she was a professional who dispensed expertise. This is very much in the progressive tradition Mm -hmm. Uh, the dispensing of expertise. She sought authority by manipulating expertise and by running and founding institutions, put that founding and running institutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, She liked to run things. Uh, Barnard suited her perfectly. She uh, uh, just just perfectly because she could direct it. She was very much in charge, in control, decade after decade after decade. She founded and ran the International Federation of University Women, a fascinating institution, and that suited her perfectly, too. And she developed many tactics to secure authority and run things, and she was fabulous as a committee chair had terrific tactics for running a committee. Her tactics were to let the committee members talk and talk and talk and talk and talk themselves out. And then when they are all done, she imposed a conclusion on the meeting and wow, it's over, has a <laughs> conclusion. Uh, she knew how to build up her resume in order to get somewhere in her professional life. She was very ambitious and directed and very, very competent. And she used her competence to secure goals for other women, especially Barnard women, but also to get ahead herself. (laughs) There's no no question about that. Uh, But there's an an. There are negative qualities that I come back to and back to, including her defiance is sometimes a troublesome quality. I think she uh, was very much a snob. She cared a lot about social class and social background. Uh, if she met you, she would want to know where you're from in the great scheme of things before she would pay any attention to you. I think she lacked tolerance. I think she did not always judge social situations accurately. Uh, she was probably profoundly self-absorbed, <laughs> uh, did not always see others, that there were others in the room. Uh, and I think she could not see her own mistakes when she made them or admit to having made mistakes or to learn from having made mistakes. Uh, I noticed uh, also that she rewrote her own story from time to time. She was not always a reliable narrator. Uh, And she was just, and I mentioned this, she was often intolerant. Intolerance takes many, many different forms. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the plus side, I always appreciated her professional ambition. Ambition is a tangible quality. It's either there or it isn't there. You can't put it there. If it's not there and she had it, I appreciated her grasp of the learning process. She got a lot out of uh, the movement for progressive education. She was very commonsensical, very progressive. Uh, uh, that, That was important to me. I appreciated her leadership skills. Uh, She—that's—it's uh, 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 sort of a natural thing that she just had, uh, as well as the uh, 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 need for dominance. And she certainly took the initiative a lot in academic affairs and in public life. And, uh, that, that was all valuable stuff. So I'm dealing with a combination of, of qualities yeah, and yeah. they jostle each other, uh, and there's a real combination.
1: Yeah. And that combination really makes for a, a it's a fascinating story of, of, about a person who is so successful, but, you know, has its flaws. So I think it's, it's a really, it's a great read in understanding how to, um, Uh, to, to enjoy the story of someone uh, who has, you know, just like all of us have, have our, our strong points and our, you know, things that we can be criticized for. So could you talk a little bit about the research process for this book?
0: And the research process was in my view, miraculous. Uh, It worked extremely well. There are vast archives of Virginia's papers at Columbia, 82 boxes. uh, A box of personal papers and the rest are really professional papers. And there's a totally different, vast collection uh, in the Barnard College archives. These are the administrative papers. all centered around, around the, the, the college. So the combination of these two vast archives uh, was unbeatable. And the material was right there waiting for me. Uh, Barnard College also happened to own the papers of a previous biographer, one of these many people uh, who started biography of Virginia and could not finish it. And so Mm. this woman, very obscure to me, a journalist, I guess, but an unknown, uh, uh, someone younger than Virginia who was very impressed with her, was working on a biography in the 1950s. And she interviewed... Uh, all of Virginia's associates and relatives, everyone whom was around at the time and left this collection of interviews. Her bi- biography went nowhere because it was an impo- impossible assignment that uh, she couldn't possibly do it. but uh the, the these firsthand records uh were relatively unused. Uh, and extremely valuable. So that was one stroke of luck that hit me at the beginning. When I saw that box of interviews with contemporaries, I fell off my seat. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I thought that, you know, this is a a signal that I should continue with this uh, uh, project. And although Virginia did Destroy her personal papers, especially her correspondence with one of her her partners, Caroline Spurgeon. Uh, some of the correspondence has turned up here and there, just a little, just a little. But what's turned up is very helpful. The letters that that uh, have turned up do support the notion of a romantic friendship between these two. Uh, I had another advantage. I had. Was the company of other scholars who were working on kindred subjects uh, uh, at the same time, and a big backlog of excellent secondary scholarship on on Vir- Virginia. Many wonderful scholars have worked on aspects of her career, not the whole thing, but on aspects, and the scholarship is 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 terrific. And a final wonderful thing that happened. To me while doing the research is simply that it was well-timed. A lot of stuff was going online that I could use. And that uh, uh, really tipped the balance in my favor. A lot of stuff had recently gone online. Uh, when I, uh, two examples, when I was looking into The career of Virginia's father, who was that first a local judge in New York City and then state Supreme Court judge, I was able to get materials on his career just by going online, I could look at his cases from the 1890s, and it was absolutely wonderful doing that work and again. At, uh, later in Virginia's career, when she went to the UN, there were many, many other ambitious people at the UN in 1945. Many wonderful and, and uh, ambitious gentlemen were there at the same time, and many of them left interviews and memoirs of their year, their months, uh, 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 or years at the UN, and this... Uh, archives have generously put some of this stuff online so the whole online research phenomena worked greatly to my favor a lot of stuff was coming up you
1: know and it's nice because you were able to get the contemporaneous notes of some of those people and their impressions of her participation at the san francisco um, at the un too and i thought that was really interesting part of your uh your ability to take the research and and to weave it all together so that
0: you get this balanced view of what really happened. I couldn't agree more. It is always so wonderful when you're working on a single person to get the views of other people who are looking at her from many different vantage points. And uh, 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 this is of course in its essence, impossible to do because you would have to look at 500 different archives and <laughs> the archives are different. So it's hit and miss. Uh, but uh, I was able to do more than my share of that. And it was absolutely invaluable. I agree. Totally.
1: Oh, that's great. That's great. So how did Virginia Gildersleeve become the dean
0: of Barnard College in 1911? Well, she was very young, 33 years old, and I think she was the right person in the right place at the right time, uh, and that she benefited from a conjuncture of circumstances. Uh, it, that the uh, previous dean, Laura Gill, Uh, had failed in 1907 there's nothing like having a predecessor who's a failure Laura Gill failed because she did not get along with President Nicholas Murray Butler uh, who didn't like her and made her life so miserable she had to resign Uh, so at that point Uh, Virginia was a humble instructor teaching freshman composition. She was very low on the totem pole. Barnard then began a four-year search for a woman dean, and over the course of four years, one by one, all the other candidates fell by the wayside, either because Nicholas Murray Butler didn't like them or because they didn't get along with the trustees for some reason, uh, uh, or or, uh, they wanted some circumstances of the search to satisfy them and they wanted to withdraw. So little by little, Uh, The the rivals, the other candidates withdrew and along the way, Virginia, who was very clever, very shrewd, started building up her academic credentials so that at the end of the four year period, she uh, was ready to move ahead. Her name was brought up in 1910 by President Butler, who was a very good friend of her father's. Now there's (laughs) another circumstance that seems extremely important uh, in uh, uh, why she got appointed. Uh, And uh, because Butler liked her so much, the Barna trustees... uh, we uh, were impressed by, they knew her too, were, were impressed by her career. Uh, and she was uh, appointed dean and, and took office in 1911. So I think two special factors put her over the top. And this, this uh, started out as a very competitive situation, although it didn't end up as one. The two special factors were that she had taught a graduate course at Columbia, I think at President, president Butler's instigation. That was very important. And also that the president was uh, a a friend of her father's. Butler ran the show at Columbia. Uh, what he, he said uh, came to happen, and that's what happened with Virginia and she managed to have a, a very good relationship with him for the next half century. I think she was always thinking of her predecessor who did not have a good relationship and was lost her job. So yeah, she she went to school on, on that woman's failure. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, uh, 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 since the competition is one of my uh, main themes i really walked right into it with the story of the, yeah. of the and, you, know, you you suggest too like she
1: was really close to her dad like she and her father seemed to have had a particularly
0: close well that's a very, an in- interesting thing that's my that i think she says that she was closer to her mother she always gives her mother first place as a parent and um uh, uh pushes her father uh somewhat further back but i think he was a tremendous influence he was the one with the big career i think she identified with him uh in a way that uh, she does not not discuss uh and uh uh, uh he 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 uh uh Took, took her to work with him and he took her into, into, he was a great sportsman and he took her hunting and fishing and whatever he, golfing, whatever he was doing, he, 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 he took her along. Uh, she got a lot of attention uh, from him, which he refused to recognize for the most part. Uh, she always uh, fa- favored the mother. Um, So, um,
1: but you know what I tell you, I was going to bring up the idea of the hunting when she's, you know, she learns how to be a sportsman with her dad. You know, knows how to hunt and things and golf and all that you just mentioned. And you know, you can't help but think about the comparison of the competitive edge that you learn in sports
0: and <laughs> how she she's able to kind of bring that into her successes in her career. She did. She brought sports into uh, uh, her. She had these things that connected sports and the competitive edge. She had learned a lot from him in a number of different sports. And he was an internationally known rifle champion. Uh, So he was no slouch, uh, her father, when it came to uh, uh, sports, Uh, a a founder of the original NRA. And uh, 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 she was trained in in everything. And as it turned out, her uh, partner, Caroline Spurgeon, had a similar experience she w- was uh, um, she and her friends were trained in college in uh, in, in, in hockey uh, they, they they were athletes too and that's back in the 1890s but yeah. the, uh, athletics do play a role in this story uh, it's a, a real I, I commend you for noticing it that's a sub theme a sub sub theme. Um, but it's there. uh, Virginia would have been very impressed uh, with Title IX if she were around to
1: (laughs) to notice it. Absolutely. I thought that too. Um, I thought that was really interesting. And you know what I thought also connected to her dad is uh, how well she works with men. Absolutely. And I kind of thought that had to go back to, you know, you think about her you know, tramping through the woods with her dad and the rifles and the hunting dogs. And then, you know, you think about her ability to uh, work so successfully
0: with men in higher education. She did. She was commended for her ability uh, to work very, very well with men Uh uh, and this does come from some previous experience she had, which, of course, is is uh, 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 with her father and her male professors. They were all men. At the time she went to college, she got along with them very well. And the sometimes uh, uh, it, uh, she was said to have disfavored women professors because she got along so well with the men professors someone commented about that this he said all the men liked her uh so that was another theme there she picked up something from her experience uh and uh uh, uh, uh it's an it's it's an important point especially because she Uh, was not interested in romances with any any of the many men she got along with so well. She was willing to take them as mentors.
1: You know, she was really willing to take these mentors as, you know, in her career. And I tell my students this all the time. It's like, take your mentors where you can get them. You know, somebody who is willing to give you good advice, support your advancement, uh, you know, help you in your career in any way, you know, you've got to take the mentors where they where they are, whether they're men, whether they're women, what you know, whatever. Uh, and she
0: really is uh, a great example of that. She did that. She did that first with her father, who remained a mentor, even though she, she doesn't acknowledge that, uh, with uh, Charles R. Crane, the diplomat, and with Nicholas Murray Butler, both big mentors, Sometimes they don't lead her in the right direction, but <laughs> they were mentors. She handled them well and got a lot out of them. Mm-hmm. And that, that those were her sources of inspiration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely male role models. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: I, yeah, I felt like that was a really strong theme in her, you know, in her development. You're so right.
0: You're so right. You know,
1: and I even sometimes say about my own career as uh, in a history department, you know, which tends to be male dominated. And mine was there was only one other woman in the history department when I was hired. And uh, I used to joke that, you know, part of the reason why I got tenure is because I I used to play golf with the men in my department. That does it. Uh... You know, you, you're willing to go out and play golf with the with the guys. And um you know, that helps. They, it, it helps you to be accepted um, in in academia and probably everywhere else, too. You know, and uh, so it's great, you know, so, you know, I think that when you write biography and you want it to be compelling, there has to be love in it. And yes. so can you talk a little bit about Virginia Gildersleeve's personal relationships?
0: Yes, there were. Two primary personal relationships I would like to mention. Two partnerships with other women. Her first partner was a British scholar of English literature, Caroline Spurgeon, a professor at Bedford College in London, which was part of the University of London. It's the women's college that was attached to the University of of London. Uh, Virginia and Caroline, or she, Cara, as she was called by her friends, met in 1918, and their partnership lasted until Cara's death in 1942. So it's a very long partnership. Each of them spent part of the year visiting the other one. And uh, by the 1930s, Cara had moved to the United States to live with Virginia. Carol was an expert on Chaucer and on Shakespeare. She's best known for her work on Shakespeare's imagery to this day. And uh, Carol was very impressive. She was a a brilliant personality, charming and enchanting and admired by everyone. And Virginia really pursued her. Uh, There's more to say there. After Carol's death, uh, in the early 40s, or maybe before Kara's death, Virginia formed a second partnership with Elizabeth Raynard, a Barnard English professor who worked on American literature and folklore and who headed the American Studies program at Barnard and who served as a naval officer in World War II. Elizabeth was a very impressive person. Two, and this was another fascinating relationship, these single sex partnerships were central to Virginia's adult life, Uh, though such friendships, such long-term close friendships were commonplace among the first generation of women professors at women's colleges in the US and in Britain. Complexities arise when we try to label the relationships. It's really impossible to do. Virginia's partnerships seem to me like romantic partnerships. These were lifelong, long romances. Uh, They filled the role of romance and marriage in Virginia's life. Uh, That's what they were. Uh what to what to do with them more than that uh a number of questions really arise. Uh, how did Virginia and the two other women see there? I see these two partnerships. What did they think of them? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Uh,
0: uh, we have to know that, and uh, I I don't know it. I I don't know how they. I, I can guess from uh, whatever smattering of of correspondence exists, and from uh, Virginia's autobiography, uh, but I don't really know. So there's always. Missing pieces, but I look at these as romantic friendships.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, and, and, you know, the fact that she destroyed some of those personal letters really fits in with what a lot of other women's historians, like you and I, have had to deal with in reconstructing and telling these women's stories, which is, is the
0: destruction of letters a tell? Yes, of course it's a tell, uh, uh, and this particular tell uh, with Virginia occurred in uh, the 1950s, the early 1950s when she was writing her autobiography. Uh, she had uh, uh, much of the correspondence between herself and uh, Caroline Spurgeon destroyed. Uh, and uh, that 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 is a tell. Some papers escaped. Uh, and still exists, but she had these things destroyed because at that point in time, uh, it would have been most unsatisfactory for her and for all the organizations she was connected with to reveal anything further about her relationships.
1: You know, you think about how many decades she built that career, carefully built that career, she was a care for she was careful keeping her records so it was definitely a deliberate it's it was deliberate thing. that's right. and uh so uh you know it's it's very interesting for us as historians looking back you know it reminds me of the famous article that Estelle Friedman wrote when she was working on the Miriam Van Waters biography called uh the burning of the letters continues and in the Absolutely. article she yeah so she she found this entry in Miriam Van Water's diary, uh, that when she was being scrutinized by enemies in her field, she burns a lot of the romantic letters between Geraldine Thompson and herself. Uh, and, you know, it's something that as historians, you know, we have to find a way to understand, uh, what that means and, and why they do it. And it's, uh, um, I think it's, it's really become, I think such an important part of what we do as women's historians is these women who had these relationships. And, you know, you think about, you know, you wrote this book in 2021, 2022, and there was the opportunity for this other historian to write this book in the 1950s. It would have been a totally different book.
0: Oh, of course, right? Of, so of course, totally, you know. totally different. Whereas, as now, the relationships, of course, came to the fore, and I'm using the, you know, uh, a lot of the same material. The relationships stood out, and of of even the history of these relationships uh, at the time they existed is it, it, is extreme, extremely interesting in 1918 when uh Virginia's partnership uh with Caroline Spurgeon began uh, uh it it fell into the, what pattern did it fall into? The the relationship of two might have fallen into the the pattern of uh, the Boston marriage of the 19th century, but it didn't really because time had was already moving on very swiftly, and uh, Caroline Spurgeon herself was uh, quite a live wire. She had already been living. With another romantic partner uh, uh, since the 1890s, she was involved in another romance and had a, f- a few intimate friendships on on the the side. So Caroline was uh, 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 quite a go getter for Virginia. This was uh, uh, seems to have been her her first major relationship, but she was. She was also the one in in pursuit. And that was quite early on, as time goes by, as the 20s and 30s come to pass. Uh, the nature of these single-sex relationships change, or if the nature of the relationship remains the same, the way society perceives them uh, changes. Let's, let's put it that way. Uh, heterosexuality becomes more, more, more normative, and single-sex relationships lose whatever legitimacy they may have had, and we don't know how ma- much that was, Uh, So uh, while these relationships are in progress for Virginia, the ground underneath them is changing, changing, changing. When Virginia described the two relationships in her autobiography. Uh, she refers to her intimate friends, but she's using the word intimate uh, to mean really close. These are my two close friends. Uh, she also describes herself as a spinster. She's for a spinster such as myself. And that was, you know, probably not uh uh that that's the case legally but it's not the case emotionally uh or in terms of affection uh so and the, these two couples were bound by ties of of affection and another thing I looked for before b- besides ties of affection, or uh I always look at the transfer of property, uh, of how wills and estates are written and to whom uh, uh uh partners leave their material goods. And there was a in both of these couples, there was a great deal of uh a transfer of transfer of property, property uh was uh in, in, in important.
1: Yeah, so they, uh, they shared the uh I think I, I remember a, a famous quote, right? That these women shared the same pillow and the same purse. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh uh money talks. <laughs> yeah, you know, and um, and it's it also is. support,
0: right? And also support for each other's careers. Oh, tremendous support for uh 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 uh, careers with uh, in the relationship between uh, Virginia and Elizabeth Ray- Raynard, there was a, this constant interchange of of favors having to do with uh, uh, professional careers, and this uh, 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 reached such 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 a point that at the end of Virginia's tenure at Barnard. As it was uh, coming to an end for her at Barnard in 1945-46, uh, she proposed that Elizabeth succeed her as dean. Uh, and uh, uh, th- this proposal was way out of line, way, way out of line uh and uh, not only was it rejected but it brought uh virginia's long reign at barnard uh to, to a speedy end it was ending anyway yeah
1: i actually um, think that's one of her big one of her big missteps it Is, was a
0: misstep Yes, you know she's
1: so strategic in the way she handles people absolutely and in this case she can't it doesn't seem like she can control her uh affection for oh, Elizabeth and that she goes too far and absolutely. makes and she really, she really hurts Elizabeth's career in that the other faculty members look at her as being favored by the Dean and, and she becomes sort of disliked right She kind of hurts absolutely. her, her absolutely. relationship with her colleagues.
0: Absolutely. So Virginia took a tremendous misstep. Now, of course, she was getting older then and so forth and so on. But a big, big misstep Mm -hmm. uh, at the end, all coming out of uh, 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 what I assume was a very passionate adoration of Elizabeth Raynard. You know, and, and really at the end of the day, I
1: guess, you know, when we look at these women's lives that, you know, we're fortunate to be able to write about them at a time where we can be honest about and be open about what the sources tell us
0: that's right. That's yes. right. Right now, we, that, 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 that's right. Nothing is permanent. This might be a temporary opportunity. All is flux. It, things move on very, very, very quickly. Yes, uh, uh, that, that's right. So uh, in, in a sense, I have to look at that as an example of my own good timing with this project. Uh, yeah. Another piece of luck.
1: Yeah, and, and I think you know, and life. I think we also have to be happy for them in a sense that you know they had love in their lives, and however you know it would have been looked at. I mean, in the by after the nineteen twenties, you know, to be in a single sex relationship was was a psychological diagnosis. Um, to be considered a homosexual was a, uh, you know, a uh, mental illness, uh, and from society's point of view. So, you know, when we look back, I mean, it's 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 nice to be able to yeah. tell these women's stories and to include them as whole people, as ambitious, as successful professionally, but also as having love in their lives. I mean, you think about it, you know, after, after Virginia Gildersleeve's parents pass away, you know, that could have been a pretty lonely life
0: if she hadn't had these but exactly at that juncture, exactly at that moment, she establishes the new relationship, just at that moment, just at that moment. Uh, so it, it worked out very w- well for her. Mm-hmm. Also, she was proud of her relationships. She was in no way about to diminish them. And one can see that in her Autobiography. She tells a lot about them. She's very straightforward, as straightforward as she could have been. Uh, uh, Her stance is very commendable. Uh, uh, She doesn't conceal and she doesn't reveal. Uh, She just plows ahead and it's extremely well done. That's another reason why I was very interested in working. Uh, with the autobiography which is in fact a very loaded source I mean no autobiographer is a reliable narrator none of them no one Um, but all sorts it's a very difficult form of writing and uh, that Virginia uh, embarked on this was uh, uh, another extraordinary facet of her life I mean along with uh, her running of institutions in in women's education, and uh, uh, as an internationalist, uh, I think her uh, role as an autobiographer is is something to be looked be looked at because uh, she would not occupy the place in history that she does without having written about it herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely, uh, n- she wanted to have someone else do it, but she also wanted control, control, and she did it herself, and it's an absolutely fascinating piece of work.
1: Mm. So the goal of a biographer is to try to understand the life of the subject. So what did you come to understand about Virginia Gildersleeve?
0: Uh, Well, I think uh, I uh, have... uh, uh, summed up the pros and cons of, 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 of person personality. I like they, they, I can only re re return. Uh, uh, leaving out the, my objections to her bigotry and uh, 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 self-centeredness and all that. Uh, I can return to the, the positive, the positive parts, which I I think were important her. Uh, uh, a fascination with with, with the tactics of of career development, uh, the tactics of administration. I'm unduly fascinated by these these things. The whole issue of how one gets ahead in a competitive circumstance and how one runs major organizations and how do you uh uh comport yourself and i uh it was uh i came to appreciate this aspect of, of virginia v- v- very much uh, uh and her notion of tactics for getting ahead uh in the academic world uh and in the world of public po- policy the business world Uh, were sort of the opposite of lean in, which we've become familiar with recently. Uh, 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 Her her philosophy could be more clearly described as weighted out uh, when a situation is rough and uh, you're the sole woman there or one of few and you don't have much influence. (laughs) You do what you can And you do it year after year, and week after week, and month after month, and you wait it out. Uh, And she found this work for her at Columbia at that point in time, that if she was a good citizen year after year, month after month, week after week, uh, providing all her services to the university, uh, that uh, when she asked for something, Finally, she would get it, and she did. She asked for admission of Barnard graduates to all the professional schools at the university. And that meant, of course, once the Barnard girls were in, that uh, uh, these professional schools would be open to women. And that that was uh, um, among her major, major achievements. What did she do for women? She did that. Uh, uh, she... she Held her ground and her tactics uh, worked, and uh, the, and I really
1: all, and also her her commitment to liberal arts education at a time when women really were not being uniformly educated that way.
0: Well, this was the tradition of the, of of the the seven sisters. Uh, it was their goal to provide for women. Uh, uh, this is what makes them distinctive, to provide for women uh, the same liberal arts education that was open to elite men. (laughs) And they did this and they stuck to their plans for the most part. Uh, And Virginia was very big on this. She defended the liberal arts tradition at every opportunity and uh although she in she was wonderful at providing opportunities for professional advances to barnard graduates she did not contaminate the undergraduate education with anything outside the liberal arts and uh spoke about this often at various gatherings there was no uh no domestic science or uh Uh, child-rearing class, no, none of that. The sole exception, which goes unmentioned, was there was professional education and teaching. That, that was open to the Barnard students. And it still is remarkably there. There is uh, a professional program in teaching. And of course, they were at, in the early days, they were uh, cooperative arrangements with teachers' colleges so that the Barnard students, few as they were, uh, could get training in teaching. And so many of them became teachers. But that was the unmentioned exception. Otherwise, uh, uh, uh Virginia had just just a staunch defender of 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 the liberal arts and the other thing uh, that she defended was women's talents and capacity capacities women's intellect and capacities or what she called trained brains and she was very hardworking in uh, her uh, public defense. Uh, especially in the World War II era of uh, of of brains train and that how these trained brains deserved professional opportunities uh in in the world so that 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 was that was a a real achievement and it was an even bigger achievement because Virginia always knew how to get publicity for herself uh, at uh, uh, in one venue or or another. she took care to uh become friends with uh, newspaper magnets Female relatives, many of whom attended Barnard and became trustees of the institution, uh, so that she always had access to the New York Herald Tribune and the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, and could, her uh, her speeches and so on were covered everywhere. And so she was. Uh, yeah, and, uh,
1: you know, and so the, and that's really like in the tradition, right, of her generation of using your women's network of cl- you know, women that you knew socially women that you knew in terms of your uh your your relatives women that you went to college with like your network of women uh was relied upon in a lot of ways and she does that very she does very that well.
0: yes yes uh uh so that that th- 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 there is a lot of interpersonal dealing here yeah uh and oh, but always with a purpose it's purposeful <laughs> Yeah, it's very. And she hired female faculty too, right? I mean, yes, Barnard had uh, by 1920 half of its faculty was female. That's an interesting transition because when Virginia was a student, uh, uh, the tradition at this this particular coordinate college was for male faculty members to one wand- wander over and. Uh, uh, give whatever courses were arranged. That's how it worked uh, uh, for a while. But gradually, gradually, uh, 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 female faculty was hired by both Virginia and her predecessors. But she did. She was 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 big on it, uh, and uh, she made many excellent appointments. Uh, And uh, there there was, again, uh, there were differences here, too. It was clear to the heads of all the women's colleges at this time that whatever combination of people were teaching there, the male professors had an edge. They got promoted faster and uh, uh, they were treated better because they were the ones who got outside offers more than the women Uh, So the economics of the city and the the college presidents were very upfront uh, about discussing matters like like this. And that includes Virginia. She had to give certain advantages uh, to the male professors uh, from her point of view Mm -hmm. and. uh, so inequities tend to build up in institutions. So I found that the outstanding women professors had been passed over for promotion for decades and decades and decades. They just moved forward. They're, they're, they were inequities.
1: And I dare say that comes up to almost you know now. I
0: mean, that still can be... You know the standard. mechanics of who gets what of course of course unless it's totally regulated uh by some ex external force and there were Virginia introduced innovations too uh, she did introduce paid pac- uh uh family pa- paid le- pregnancy leave for women faculty members which was a wonderful innovation now at the time she did this there were very few people to take advantage of it because most women faculty members were not getting pregnant, but it was a, a tremendous a, a tremendously good precedent.
1: Absolutely. It so, so a you good know her, precedent. her impact on women in higher education, all the things you just talked about, I think is so impressive. Um, and is very are very admirable things that in terms of her impact you know the thing about maternity leave i had no idea i thought that was really quite forward-thinking and and liberal in in terms of you know her time uh that she was a, a leader of of barnard and
0: she thought so too <laughs>
1: yeah yeah it's really it's very interesting you know at a time when women did not uh you know, continue working when they had children in general, so it really some fantastic forward looking and i think um uh, leader you know really a leader in women's education and but um, would you consider her a feminist, which I think is you know another really interesting point in your book
0: yes uh uh Virginia did not consider herself uh a feminist th- th- uh, uh what a loaded word. She uh, uh, always uh, used the word to refer to persons other than herself uh, who were uh, uh, advocating equal rights for women. Uh, and uh, uh, she distinguished herself from this group and her remarks would always go something like this. The feminists might criticize me for such and such uh but uh so the, the she saw saw feminism as 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 some something uh uh di- different than 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 herself. And these differences reflect differences in the in the women's movement uh in during during the period that uh uh, Virginia was the head of, head, of, head of barnard the women's movement was divided there was a smaller equal rights faction uh very militant very adamant very admirable and there was all the rest of the women's movement and which it might be said uh uh, uh, other members of the women's movement had suspicions of of of, of, of women's rights, or were not disinterested, or, uh, or at some actually hostile to the prospect. Found it ex- this would be extremely damaging, or simply disliked the advocates of women's rights and. Uh, uh, Virginia was uh, a part of the other team. Uh, the historian William L. O'Neill calls uh, uh, the other team social feminists. I find this label very useful because it uh, applies to a whole group of women, of women activists who had a lot in, lot in common, and that includes Virginia. These are women who put other goals ahead of women's rights. Uh, And Virginia would consider herself to be part of that group. She put goals in education and higher education uh, uh, ahead of uh, uh, equal rights. And she was suspicious of, uh, of movements for equal rights when they appeared in her terrain. Uh, and uh, uh, tried, tried to dis- disassociate herself uh, from them. So this this is a real distinction. I'd say she, her, she had a very cohesive uh, uh, point of view shared by many others, including for a long time, Eleanor Roosevelt, and certainly Jane Addams and other women educators. Uh, so, uh, uh, it might be unfair to t- use the term social feminist and it doesn't really apply and so forth and so on, but it's sort of useful for an understanding of, of, of v- Virginia, uh, who yeah. became quite cautious when it, it came to these matters. When w- woman suffrage was a big issue, Virginia. Stood back from it. That is before 1917. In 1917, uh, New York State approved votes for women. And after that, Virginia supported it. Before then, she was extremely cautious. Uh, She said that it was not her place as the dean of a college to uh, push for one one opinion or another. She was going to be totally disinterested and uh, would not take any declar- make any declaration in in favor of of, of woman suffrage. This 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 stance seems seems to us extraordinarily cautious, extra uh, very pers- persnickety, uh, if not unprincipled. Um, Uh, what was she doing but that that was that was her stance. I
1: actually felt felt about it I I have to say I kind of felt that her um, that she was so reluctant to offer her own political opinion on suffrage is so interesting because certainly she's an independent professional woman, you know, what we would call in women's history the new woman. Yes, in many ways, uh, urban, she lives in the city, she has her own career, she's educated, and she's has her her interests in in promoting women in education as well as her own career. Um but she is you know very guarded in taking a strong political stand on something that is could be viewed as controversial and could blow back at her you know maybe she was also being strategic in terms of her own stand in terms of this the, even the trustees you know the trustees of this college
0: absolutely right? oh so, you know it might have been very political as well it's political her caution is 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 both political and professional uh there are instances later in her, her career in the uh uh 1930s when uh, uh she lacks caution uh Uh, Her behavior is consistent with her earlier behavior, but she, it turns out she lacks caution and it comes back to bite her. Uh, uh, It's very, very, very uh, 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 troublesome. Her comments on international affairs in the early 1930s, follow the same line of of reasoning. Uh, I'm not going to take a position on this, and I'm not going to take a position on that. And she was wrong. (laughs) In that instance, she was wrong, and it... comes back com- comes back to injure her. Do you so, think it, it damages her reputation? Uh, oh, it, and Maybe? historically, over the yeah. long course, it yeah. it 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 does it it does. So she didn't always call every situation uh correctly yeah, and that's the way history is when you call something correctly you get no credit for it but when you don't when you make a mistake and when someone is watching when those little cell phones are taking your photo at that exact yeah you run in, uh, into trouble and yeah. uh, Uh, she, 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 she certainly did. She certainly did.
1: Yeah. So she's complex, you know, and so we're kind of coming back full circle here in our interview to the complexity and even the unlikable parts of her, which I think that you handle so sensitively uh, in the book, the, her great accomplishments and who she is digging into who understanding who she is, and so let's talk a little bit about The Elephant in the Room, which is some of the things that she does that are controversial. For example, her uh, uh, anti-Semitism, perhaps, or her anti-Zionism and and that. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that part of the book? Because
0: it is a really important part of the biography. It's definitely The Elephant in, 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 in the Room. Uh, and I focused a, a lot on uh her anti-semitism in college admissions in the 1920s and 1930s uh and one has to explain all of it with extreme caution uh she can she can defend herself in 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 this instance, and of course I can defend her too because I have spent a lot of years in legal history, and I can defend both sides at all times. Barnard admissions in these decades was anti-Semitic. Uh, that was true. Uh, the college had many reasons for it, including Virginia's desire to create classes that uh, uh, she didn't use the word diverse, uh, but uh, that reflected diversity. She said, we want not just young women from New York City, but from New York State and from all the other states and from foreign countries and people of many different backgrounds. We want a varied clientele here And we cannot admit everyone who applies from New York City. Uh, And uh, she explains her rationale very well and it is a rationale and I will not defend it now. Uh, That does not mean that the uh, rejected applicant has no case. The rejected applicant does have a case Uh, that uh, uh, there was bias against her when she applied, uh, uh, that uh, she was a victim of anti-Semitic attitudes on the part of the Board of Admissions at Barnard, which is comprised of Virginia and a colleague. Uh, And uh, uh, so uh, uh, there are two sides to this story. (laughs) Uh, but the charge of anti-Semitism sticks. Virginia did not like East European Jews uh, and uh, uh, there was a big Jewish influx of immigrants into New York City at the start of the 20th century. uh, And uh, many factors came together to make it possible for the daughters of, of immigrant families to apply to Barnard, including the New York State Board of Regents, which provided regent scholarships to all those who a- achieved well in their high school careers and got good marks on their Regents exams. New York State, for a number of decades, gave such students enough money to attend any college they wanted in the city. They just had to get admitted. Uh, So finances um, for a a brief period of time of two decades uh, became very simple. If you were poor and you applied to Barnard and you got in, you could go there. Uh, You'd have to commute, but you could go there. Uh, And if uh, uh, your admission was was if you your application was rejected, then you couldn't go. And if Virginia was responsible for that, then you held it against her. And so uh, uh, this became, from Virginia's point of view, she wanted no part of, of, of this whole barrel of, of trouble. Uh, she thought it was just her poor luck that her marvelous college happened to be in this place at this time and that the admissions problems it faced were more difficult than her point of, from her point of view than those faced at the sister colleges, she was always looking at the sister colleges. What's happening at Wellesley and Smith and Radcliffe and Bryn Mawr? Why those people do not have the same problems that we do here in New York City? Uh, so she was aggrieved essentially, and uh, had to had to cope with this uh, for with her own. Uh, agreement at the situation for a number of years so that this is one big elephant in the room of course it is yeah of course it is of,
1: and ironically of it's still it going on i mean there's the the case in the supreme court right now the affirmative action case that they're <laughs> just heard the arguments this week uh of course we, we did. consider so the rise in anti-semitic violence is at a a high in the you know, right now, uh since 2016, we've seen rising anti-semitism and violence against uh Jewish people and Asian people all around the country. And so uh you know, her that... it makes her it makes
0: this discussion really relevant, right? Well, it's a little too relevant. It's a little yeah. too relevant. And I guess the the takeaway point here is that uh around 1920. Uh, a, co- a competition for college admissions became something real that it had not been before, and after that, it just becomes more and more real, more and more competitive. Uh, that, that the whole moment of college admissions became, at that point, a crucial uh, uh, intersection in anyone's life, a crucial turning point. Uh, that it had not been before. And we're living with the the consequences now. So as with anything else, you don't know that history is happening when it's happening. And uh, uh, certainly Virginia and her colleagues were unaware that this great turning point was upon them. And it and this is why we study history, right? We we study that's history why we to understand study history. ourselves and to understand this long arc of that, the that that, the, that of that's, of that's why we study history. So that that is one of uh, of the ele- elements in the in one of the elephants in the room. It it yeah. it, it definitely, you know, definitely is. So
1: let me turn to this then, and kind of. Tie this into the first African American student at Barnard, who was Zora Neale Hurston. Marvelous! marvelous. You know, so one of the fun things about reading a biography is to see all the different side stories and characters that walk through the life of the subject. And in this case, there's this great section of the book about Zora Neale Hurston and her intersection with. Virginia Gildersleeve. So could you talk a little bit about? Oh,
0: absolutely. I agree with you totally that minor characters in, in, in biography and autobiography are absolutely amazing. Well, here's what it was: Zora Neal Hurston was Barnard's first Black student. She entered in 1925 and graduated in 1920 20, 20, after an extraordinarily wonderful college car- career. Virginia did not look on Zora as part of her own story and never mentioned her in her autobiography or elsewhere. never mentioned her. It's us we're interested in Zora, and there she is and uh uh, so I had cause to look at their the intersection of these two. Uh, uh, personalities. And at the, in this instance, I see a piece of Virginia's experience that she did not see and had no interest in. Uh, so, uh, this is an interesting phenomena to, be, to begin with. Well, anyway, Zora entered Barnard while Virginia was Dean because Barnard trustee, Annie Nathan Meyer, uh, insisted that uh, uh, Zora be admitted and invited her. Annie Nathan Meyer was very interested in nearby Harlem and in, in its talented uh, residents and uh, in Black culture generally. Uh, She had uh, uh, met Zora on occasion, on the occasion when Zora won won a prize for one of her short stories, which was published in a Langston Hughes volume. And uh, 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 Annie Annie Nathan Meyer was the actor here, not Virginia, but Virginia uh, uh, wanted to accommodate Annie and, and so put up with what she wanted. Zora at this moment was uh, about in her mid 30s. She said she was 26 she lied about her age but she was, uh, she, she was older. She had attended Howard University. Uh, uh, I believe I believe she was a graduate of How- Howard but uh, uh she was happy to go to Barnard when invited. Uh she saw a very good opportunity for herself. Uh and absolutely captured captivated Annie Nathan Meyer, who said, you must attend Barnard. We'll find you a scholarship somehow. And they did. And Zora obliged. Virginia was dubious about the whole idea of admitting a Black student. Uh, uh, She was dubious about Zora, but uh, uh, she capitulated to whatever Annie Nathan Meyer Wanted, and she stood back from the whole issue, which was commendable. She had some reluctance and kept explaining her reluctance, but she stood back. Uh, thereafter, Zora dominates the story because Zora dominates every story. Zora, Zora was a complete scene stealer. And her career at Barnard was momentous. She loved it there, loved becoming a Barnard girl. And this was is always set on one level of meaning uh, with a lot of irony in, in it. But Zora uh as, uh loved her study she was a uh, a marvelous student she did just what barnard girls are supposed to do she developed a passionate interest in an academic field in her case anthropology uh, uh she then went on to become a graduate student in uh, that new field. So basically, she had two major fields of interest: her own writing and uh, 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 the anthrop the research in anthropology. Her performance uh, uh, was was really fabulous. And after uh, Zora Neale Hurston's appearance, Barnard did admit a few black students not too many every couple of years some someone else uh, uh like uh zora the subsequent students were not allowed to live in the dorms they lived some, somewhere else until about mid century and zora too had to live off campus uh she had a uh, uh, a wonderful way of ignoring all these insults and difficulties and just plowing ahead to uh, get what 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 she wanted. So the the triumph of this entire episode is Zora. Zora was the game changer and 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 to another extent Danny Nathan Meyer who initiated uh, uh, the whole the whole whole in- interlude. This was not uh, Virginia's triumph. Um, but she, uh, does play a continuing role in the story. And uh uh, it was something that 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 happened that she had no reason to ever look back on or ever think of or mention again. Uh, it, finally, this is an episode in which Virginia was the insider and Zora was the outsider uh and uh, uh in this instance the outsider handles the whole thing much better than the than the insider and so it seemed only fair to uh, uh give give her credit credit for it and because we're dealing with zora the story has many more nuances uh and exists on many n- more plateaus of comprehension but it it was a, 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 a commend a very interesting episode. Very
1: yeah, and you know, I think as the reader, we can really feel your, how much fun you had writing that section Absolutely. of the book as well. I could really feel your, how much you enjoyed it. And, you know, and there's so many great people that walk through this book. And so I really, I have to say, it's a great page turner And that Virginia Woolf walks through the book, John Maynard James, <laughs> Franz Boas, you know, all these people who are really fantastic personalities of the time walk through this story as well. So it's a great read and it and it makes the uh, makes the story of her life
0: even more fun to read about. I agree totally. And I will add that you have to read a lot of fiction in order to truly appreciate the role of the minor characters. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. So
1: I want to thank Dr. Nancy Wallach for joining me on the show today and for a great discussion of the new book, The Insider, The Life of Virginia C. Gildersleeve, published by Columbia University Press. I really hope you pick it up and read it. I think you're going to enjoy it. I can't Thank you enough. I had such a good time meeting you and have been an admirer for many, many years. So Me it's really too. been such a pleasure. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading.